The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Bear Creek Church. So my name is Pastor Bill Bridget. I'm still getting used to saying it like that. So whether you're here in person or watching online, we're certainly glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, I would ask if you could, if you have a Bible with you, if you would open to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be taking a look at verses 1 through 18. So Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. You know, people have made jokes about people like Charles Spurgeon, who could preach a a six-part sermon or a six-sermon series on on one verse, maybe even just one word from a verse. Several weeks back, Pastor Brian did an entire sermon on the verse, Jesus wept. So I don't know what it says about me that I have to use 18 verses to make my point, but either way, here we go. Let's take a look at this together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, for these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit, sorry, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will... I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together, please. Father God, we thank you for this time this morning. I pray that as we are in your word, it will be an encouragement to each of us. We acknowledge that it feels like there are so many things going on in the world around us that could occupy our thoughts. Yet we ask that you help us now to set those thoughts aside, to spend time 
focus on you and your word. We submit this all to you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, the book of Hebrews is certainly one of my favorite books. In fact, truth is, we would do well to do a study of the entire book. Now, that's not the plan for this morning, so don't worry. I remember studying this book one time, and I read several different commentaries and listened to several different messages. And when the discussion of authorship came up, it's generally agreed that we don't know who the author is. You have some various theories. Some say it was Paul. Some say it was Apollos. Some say it was Peter. Some say it was this, that, or another person. Some point to the structure of how the books of the New Testament are laid out. You have the four Gospels. You have the book of history and the book of Acts. And then you have letters with all of Paul's letters grouped together and then the general letters to follow. So the question becomes, does the list of Paul's letters end with Hebrews or do the general letters begin with Hebrews? The one commentary I read that we don't know who the author is. The only thing that we're certain about is that it is not Paul. Seems pretty definitive. Then I listened to a message from someone who I have a lot of respect for and their theological understanding saying that he believed Paul to be the author. So we don't know. We, we have our opinions, but we don't know. So for our purposes this morning, we'll refer to the author simply as that, as the author or the writer of the book of Hebrews. So let's jump right in. We're going to be reading through all of this again, more verse by verse, and talking about it as we go. To begin, though, I'd like to start a couple of verses back. So I guess I really needed more than 18 verses to make my point. So let's look at, at chapter 9, beginning at verse 27, where it says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now we look again at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So a, a relationship is established here, a connection between the old covenant and the new covenant, and the good things that are still to come. The writer of Hebrews says that the law was no more than a shadow of the heavenly realities. By shadow, the writer means a sketch or an outline. The Greek term translated shadow refers to a, a pale reflection that's contrasted with a sharp or a distinct one. So as an example, we may think about being out on a walk and we see the shadow of a tree on the sidewalk or a road. It may be an especially sunny day and so that shadow is really distinct. We can look at the shadow. We can see that it's the shadow from a tree. But we don't fully appreciate the beauty of the tree based on the shadow. There are some details from the tree that are not present in the shadow. We don't see all the amazing colors of the tree when looking at the shadow. We see the outline. We see enough to recognize it for what it is, but we don't fully appreciate all that it is. Or we may also think of, of a picture. Maybe you have a picture that you keep of somebody close to you, somebody special to you. Maybe when you're not near that person, you, you look at the picture and the picture brings you comfort. When I worked at the bank, I would travel out of town, usually up to Seattle for trainings or meetings. And when I'm traveling without Jessica, I miss her. So I like to pull up pictures I have of her on my phone. When I'm not with her and I miss her, it can be of some comfort 
to look at a picture of her. You can see much of her beauty because of the picture. See, there are things in the Old Testament that were a picture of the things to come. They had their purpose, but they could also be lacking. They were but a shadow of the good things to come. Now, the main emphasis here has to do with the the roughness of the picture available to the Old Testament saints. John Calvin explains that the things of the law were like the rough outlines which are the foreshadowing of the living picture. Before they put on the true colors with paint, artists usually draw an outline in pencil of the representation which they intend. Such was the shadow that was the law of the Old Covenant. So in the Old Testament, we see the institution of the tabernacle. Okay, God goes, okay, I'm going to institute the the tabernacle because I can't let sin go unpunished. I can't let sin go unpunished because I'm just. So I'll institute the tabernacle. That wasn't a bad impersonation, huh? I think I nailed it. And the tabernacle was this situation where you'd come in and you'd talk to the priest and say, I've sinned against God. And so to deal with this past sin... That's important. Blood had to be shed, so they would kill an animal. And then this pattern was repeated over and over and over again. But the problem is, according to even our text in Hebrews 10, is it didn't work. So what happened was that people got stuck in what I'm going to describe as a rich, sort of a ritualistic religion. And they did the same. It did not set them free from the shame, guilt, and sin in their hearts. So they got stuck in this ritualistic behavior of the tabernacle and were never set free. So they're kind of doomed to week after week after week, year after year after year, do the same religious things that brought about the same results. Now we also see in in verse 1 that it says, make perfect those who draw near. Now the perfection that the writer has in mind does not involve a lack of flaws, thankfully, right? but rather a state of right relationship with God in which the worshipers are once and for all cleansed from sin and delivered from a nagging sense of guilt. The fact that the old covenant system could not deliver in this regard as demonstrated by offerings made year after year shows the need for a different and a better system. Now I want to stop for a moment just to make something clear. What we're talking about here is sacrifices, the need for sacrifices, a new sacrifice for new sins. In the Old Covenant, they would commit a sin and a sacrifice was needed to deal with that sin. Then they would commit another sin and a new sacrifice was needed to deal with that sin. We shouldn't confuse this today with the need to go before the Lord and ask for forgiveness for our sins. A new sacrifice is not needed every time we sin, but out of love and obedience and reverence before the Lord, We acknowledge our sin and ask for forgiveness as a part of repentance. Two different things. Now back to our our text. As one commentator noted, the Mosaic law with its priesthood, covenant, sacrifices, and tabernacle can never make a person perfect since it is but a shadow of the true form which is found in Christ in his final sacrifice. We'll talk more about that part later. So an effective thing does not need to be done again. That's what makes it effective. The very fact of repetition of these sacrifices is the final proof that they are not purifying men's souls and not giving them full, uninterrupted access to God. So to me, this begs the question, 
Why then did God go to all the trouble to, to establish the old covenant with its shadow ceremonies, its shadow rituals, its shadow sacrifices? What was the point? I think there are a few main reasons, and I'll quickly mention three. First was that simply, even as a shadow, it had a purpose. It was to reflect the reality of which it was a shadow. It pointed to the salvation that was to come. It was to make God's people expectant. 1 Peter 1.10 references the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Second, the purpose of the shadow sacrifices was to remind God's people that a penalty for sin had to be paid, and the penalty of sin is death. The blood that flowed from the altar came from animals who were killed as sacrifices for sin. The people were constantly being reminded that the wages of sin is death because death was going on all day long throughout their history as animals were being slaughtered. Third, God gave his people the sacrifice as a covering for sin. So they served a purpose in the immediate dealing with that sin, and they did deal with that sin. They did cover that sin. Even a shadow is better than nothing if it can to some degree cover sin. If it's a hot day, some shade is good, even if it's not fully satisfying. When properly offered from a true heart of faith, the old sacrifices removed immediate temporal judgment from God. Those sacrifices were temporal, and they had some temporal effect and value. So we're establishing a little bit of a, of a foundation here, so don't worry, we'll be picking up the pace as we go through our passage. But let's keep going. Verse 2, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Or in the NIV, it says the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. If sin had really been overpowered by that system of sacrifices, the Old Testament believers' consciences would have been cleansed from condemning guilt. There was not freedom of conscience or guilt under the Old Covenant. So the conscience of sin has to do with guilt. There's a certain amount of guilt that just comes with sin. It's, this, it's just a system that's built into us. Just like pain is built into us. Our body reacts with pain from bodily injury. Your soul reacts with guilt from disobedience to God. It's a warning system. And they never in the Old Testament ever were relieved of this tension of guilt. It's a wonderful thing in the Christian life to know that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing to be free from guilt and to recognize that your sins are continually being forgiven by the grace of God through the death of Christ. They didn't have that freedom. They had attention. They were torn between what they knew was God's law and the consciousness of guilt that they had always had because they always broke his law. See, with their shadow, the animal sacrifices could cover but never remove sin. And yet removal of sin is what we need. Sin and guilt eat away at us, but the old system cannot remove sin or guilt. If it could have, then sacrifices would have stopped. Once having removed sin, they would no longer be necessary. They would not need to keep sacrificing. Now the old sacrifice, sacrifices not only did not remove sin, but they were a constant reminder that, that, that they could not 
Let's look at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Even the covering of sin was temporary. It lasted only until the next sin. The Old Testament sacrifices not only could not remove sin, but their constant repetition was a constant reminder of that deficiency. The promise of the new covenant was that the sin would be removed and even God would remember our sins no more. The sacrifices pointed not to themselves as a solution, but away from themselves. The main teaching was not what they could do, but what they could not do. William Barclay explains this with a simple analogy. He said, a man is ill. A bottle of medicine is prescribed for him. If that medicine affects a cure, every time he looks at the bottle, thereafter he will say, that is what gave me back my health. On the other hand, if the medicine is ineffective, every time he looks at the bottle, he will, he will be reminded that he is still ill. It may sometimes give relief from the symptoms, but it does nothing to cure the disease. So again, the, the old sacrifices and ceremonies, instead of removing sins, they only gave temporary relief and were a constant reminder that their sins were still there. Another year, another lamb, another sacrifice, and the sins were still there. The sacrifices kept reminding the people that they were sinful, that they were at the mercy of God and could not enter into his presence. Far from erasing sin, the tabernacle and temple sacrifices only served to call attention to it. Now let's keep going. Now we've got an interesting thing happening because God said, hey, sacrifice your, your bulls and goats for the removal of sin. We could look back into Leviticus for this. And now you've got God saying in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Not permanently. And then he's going to explain it in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So God is going, I, I don't want your bull. I don't need your goats. That's, that's not what I want. That does not please me. I'm not after your sacrifice. I'm after your hearts, the doing of his will. Let's jump back just a little bit in our text. Go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, saying that Christ is the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, de of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? These sacrifices only sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, the external, but the blood of Christ, who through the external spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses our consciences, the internal. So how do we reconcile this? And we basically have, 
have God saying that he does not desire sacrifices and offerings when he was the one who established these very ordinances as a way to draw near to him in the Old Covenant. I think one thing to consider is the many prophetic passages expressing God's displeasure with sacrificial rituals. These warnings do not condemn the sacrifices themselves, but instead the hypocrisy of those who simply went through the motions without any heart involvement. A good example of this comes from Psalm 51, where David cries, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The same might be said today about people who, go, who just go through the motions of worship. As Jesus taught the woman at the well, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. But there's another fundamental point being made. Perhaps the best Old Testament example comes from the story of King Saul. Saul had disobeyed an explicit command of God not to take captive any livestock from his enemies. When Samuel challenged him for this, Saul offered to sacrifice a few of his contraband animals to God, kind of paying them off, as it were. To which Samuel responds with, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in, as, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So Samuel's point, and the point of our passage, is that even though God established the sacrifices of animals, these were not God's true desire. They were not a statement of the solution, but of the problem. What God desires from us is obedience, not sacrifices to cover our disobedience. The sacrifices cover our sin. They do. And we thank God that they do. But God making a way to deal with our sin is not to be confused with saying that this is how he desired it to be. The sacrifices show the constant presence and horrid nature of sin. Every time a lamb's breast was opened and the blood flowed down the altar, this point was made. This was not what God desired. No, what God desires is heart obedience from people who were bought with his love. Well, this is not a, a perfect example. Let me try to illustrate my point. If when my kids were really little and they were sitting on the couch with a drink and I asked them to be careful so they don't spill, then they're not careful and they spill the drink and they go and grab a towel to clean it up. I'm thankful that there's a towel to clean it up. That was the point of having the towel. But my desire was that they not need the towel. My desire was that they were careful and not spill the drink in the first place. Obedience pleases God. He is satisfied by a heart eager to do his will, by a life expressing the character of God set forth in the Ten Commandments. Whereas Jesus summarizes them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God wants. So God is saying, if you're giving me your bulls and goats and not your heart, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in your sacrifice or offering to me. So let's keep going. Verse 7. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So now you've got Jesus coming, this old way of you trying to to do what you know is right, this old way of you trying to barter with me all the time, this old way of you coming into my temple and going, well, I've blown it again, but here, take this sacrifice to to appease yourself of my wrongdoings. Jesus is saying, I'm removing the old system and I'm establishing a new one. Now let's read about this new one because this new one is great, great news for us today. Verse 10. And by that will, or the will of Jesus to come, remove the old system and establish a new, and by that will we have been sanctified. Now this word sanctified simply means to put in the proper place. So sanctification is God taking our hearts and lives and placing them in that place where they are created to walk and dwell. It's becoming more and more like Christ. John MacArthur said this, Sanctification is the progressive disconnect in the life of a believer from sin, and towards righteousness. So back to verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Did you notice the word once? That's important. Not like the old system where they had to keep going back for a new sacrifice, but with Jesus, it was once for all. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So here's something really unusual about the tabernacle. There were no chairs. You weren't allowed to sit down, specifically if you were a priest. If you were a priest, you couldn't sit down because sitting down in the tabernacle would be symbolic of work being finished. So a priest was never allowed to sit down in the tabernacle because his work was never done. Because people, no matter how many offerings they brought in, could never have the guilt, fear, shame, depression, overwhelming sense of emptiness removed from them because God was not after goats and bulls. He was after their hearts. And so he's saying priests would offer these sacrifices but were never able to sit down because their work was partial, not complete, lacking and never finished. Now we get to what what is one of my favorite verses of scripture Hebrews 10:12 But when Christ had offered for all time let me ask you a question how, how much of time is incorporated in in all time all of it right which means that the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross covered sins of the past because that's that's all of time the present because that's included in all time and the future because that's all of time So the sacrificial death of Christ covered once and for all, all sins. So again, 10-12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. So in verse 11, the priests stand daily. Day after day they stand, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. But Jesus once for all, offered for for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And he sat down. 
his work was complete and finished. Verses 11 and 12, we see the old and the new contrasted. Thousands of priests versus one priest. The old priest continually standing versus the sitting down of the new. Repeated offering, offerings versus once for all offering. And the ineffective sacrifices that only covered sin versus the effective sacrifice that completely removes sin. So Jesus dies on the cross, is resurrected from the dead, and sits down and says, It's over. He said, It's finished. Well, let's keep going. Verse 13. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So verse 12 said, at the right hand of God. And then we see in 13, a footstool for his feet. So this calls us back to Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the writer of Hebrews is is showing that the securing of full and final forgiveness of sins has been accomplished. It is finished. Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected for all time does not mean the believers are now already sinless, but that Christ has fully earned their perfection. The eternal perfection of the saints stems from the once-for-all nature of Jesus' sacrifice. Hence, believers look to Christ for, and not to themselves for a cleansed conscience, full forgiveness of sins, and total flawlessness in the future. For those of you who are, who are believers in Christ, let me ask you a question. How many of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross? I'm going to guess all of them, unless... Some of you are older than I thought. So that on the cross of Jesus Christ, your sins, my sins, covered by the blood of Christ, so that we stand perfect before the living God. That's unbelievably hard to get our minds around. But let's keep reading. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So no longer is the law an external thing put on top of us that we have to bear externally, but now he'll write it on our hearts. One commentary said, the internalization of God's laws means that God's people now do his will not yet perfectly, but in intention and endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at these next two. These next two are huge for us. Verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So it says, I will remember their sins no more. Indicates that Christ's single new covenant offering was eternal. And such forgiveness means there is no longer any other offering for sin. The new covenant's superiority to the old is shown most clearly in the full and final forgiveness of sins. Look again at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, where Christ has come alive in our hearts, where Jesus has saved us, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
So what just happened is Jesus says, where I have come into your hearts and into your life, I am, I'm no longer taking offerings. It's over. It's finished. I think we struggle with this idea that we no longer give offerings. We try to give gifts to God to accomplish what he has already accomplished. We, we bring them as though God needs them, as though we've contributed something. We can be like King Saul and try to pay God off, so to speak. I remember as a little kid, I didn't have a lot of money of my own to buy Christmas gifts. I was probably like five years old. So I, I went into each person's room and would take something of theirs and then wrap it up and give it to them as a gift. So you can imagine my dad's surprise, for example, when he opened a dirty 916-cent wrench or my brother who opened a used pencil. I felt good and accomplished because I gave them something they want. I knew they wanted it because... It was theirs. But it really did nothing. I was just giving them something they already had. See, the gospel is amazingly complicated and yet amazingly simple. It is finished. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father because it was done. It is finished. We want to try to earn our salvation, but we can't. I know that some people don't like that. People like the rules. They, they like the law. They like the tabernacle. Many of us would prefer to just have a list of do these things, don't do these things, and then once we complete the list, we're done. We may feel like a, a debt was paid that now we have to work off. But that's not it. We are guilty of sin. And the penalty for our sin that we are guilty of has been paid. It's not like we got off on a technicality. We were found guilty, but the penalty has already been paid. It's done. It is finished. See, the good news of the gospel is amazingly complicated and yet amazingly simple. Now, we could be done here. We could have a message on the gospel and be done. As I've heard Bob Scott say before, nobody complains when the sermon is too short. So we could just end it here. But there's just, there's just one problem. See, you're a sinner, and you're a sinner, and you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And because we're all sinners, sometimes we hear a message on grace, or we hear a message on the gospel. We hear a message where we are reminded that it is finished. And we can be tempted to begin to take on a, kind of a cheap grace mentality. A viewpoint that says it doesn't matter what I do if I sin or not. I'm forgiven, so I'm going to just do whatever I want. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's over. The penalty has been paid, so it doesn't matter what I do. We can hear a message on the gospel and take it as a license to sin. But if we take an attitude that says it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter what's in our hearts, then we don't fully grasp who God is. As we've already said, God cares about our obedience. Now, I will say this about us. We are really, really, really good at recognizing sin and taking sin seriously. Actually, let me say that a different way. We are really, really good at recognizing and taking seriously other people's sin. And conversely, really, really good at minimizing and justifying and being blind to our own sin. 
We can explain sin away, can't we? We do it all the time. We say things like, I'm not gossiping. I'm just keeping you informed so you can pray. I'm not gossiping or complaining. I'm just venting. I'm not being manipulative. I'm just helping you to know what you should do. We explain away our sin as a way to minimize our own sin. When we do this, we play a dangerous game. It can allow us to compartmentalize our sin and convince ourselves that this is just our thing, that it doesn't hurt anybody. Minimizing our sin is saying that ultimately our sin doesn't really matter because it's not that big of a deal. Minimizing our sin minimizes the cross. When I was in college, I struggled with this pattern of compartmentalizing, of acting as though when I, what I was doing in one part of my life didn't have an impact in what I was doing in another part of my life. So when I was in college, I was a Christian. I was at church most every Sunday morning, Wednesday evening. We'd sing worship, open the word, and it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. However, I also had a huge problem with alcohol at this time in my life. I had zero self-control when it came to the use of alcohol. I was able to convince myself that what I did on Friday and Saturday night had no bearing on what I did Sunday morning or Wednesday evening. Thankfully, by the grace of God, he convicted me of this hypocrisy. It should scare us. Compartmentalizing our sin or minimizing our sin should scare us. It should scare us if we don't hate our sin. It should scare us into being open and transparent with one another. Afraid of what sin we might be minimizing or what sin we act as though it doesn't matter. Pastor Jim referenced this already, but Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Do we think about it this way? When we compartmentalize our sin, when we make excuses for it, when we ignore conviction, we begin to harden our heart to our own sin. When we take an approach that says, what I do over here doesn't matter and certainly doesn't impact what I'm doing over there, we're deceiving ourselves. The good news of the gospel is not that I can do whatever I want to do because it doesn't matter. It's not that Jesus sat down, so if I sin, it doesn't matter, so I might as well just keep on sinning, keep on doing whatever. It's not freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom to do as we should. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now adopted by God because of Jesus and what he has done. If we act as though our sin doesn't matter, then we've missed who God is. He desires our obedience, but looks to Jesus and thus sees us as righteous. We are lost, justly condemned, but God saved us through Christ and declared us just. We talked in the beginning about having a picture, right? We said that sometimes you have a picture that you keep of somebody close to you, somebody special to you, and when you're not near that person, it can be a comfort to take a look at that picture. I will look at a picture of Jessica when I'm out of town. And that picture, it does bring comfort. 
But here's the problem with the picture. The problem is that ultimately it doesn't satisfy. We cannot sit and have a conversation with a picture. The picture doesn't encourage us when we are down. We don't hold a picture the same way that we do the person. The picture causes us to long for the real thing. The picture causes us to long for something better. The picture may satisfy for a little while, but ultimately it creates a longing in us for something more. The old covenant system caused a longing for the good things to come, for Jesus. But I'm afraid many of us are perfectly content to worship the shadows, to keep God at arm's length, to worship the pictures of Christ and not worship Christ. Often in our lives, I think we are very content with the pictures. Because even though we profess to be a Christian in 2021, we don't actually know Jesus. We've lied to ourselves and convinced ourselves and deceived ourselves that these pictures or substitutes are good enough. We go through the motions, therefore we're a Christian. We acknowledge a God, therefore we're a Christian. We come to church, therefore we're a Christian. God desires our obedience every day of the week, not just on Sunday mornings. God is after our is not after our bulls and goats. He's after our hearts. So we, we rest in the gospel and the good news of the gospel that though I am guilty of sin, Christ died and paid the penalty. I am forgiven. I cannot earn my salvation. Jesus already did it. It's finished. Yet, I have to guard my heart against a mindset that therefore it doesn't matter what I do, so why even try to honor God? God desires my obedience all the time, every hour of every day of every week. Yet I know I will fall short. And when I do, I rejoice in the gospel. But that doesn't mean that I don't try, that I don't work at obedience. I don't say, well, I'm going to fall short anyway, so just forget it. It doesn't matter. We have to get out of our head the idea of perfection in our walk. We are not perfect, and yet some of us can think that if we can't do it perfectly, why even try? Remember what we said before. The writer of Hebrews said, perfected for all time. That does not mean that believers are now already sinless, but that Christ has fully earned our perfection. Perfection does not mean a lack of flaws on our part, but rather a state of right relationship with God. We rely on Christ's righteousness, But an aspect of our salvation is sanctification, growing more and more like Christ. So how can we take from that that it doesn't matter what we do, so let's just keep sinning all that we want? Now, we're not talking about failures. We all have failures. No, what we're talking about is embracing sin, making room for it in our lives and saying it doesn't matter. Christ bore our sin on the cross. He bore the penalty. He turned aside God's judgment, God's wrath from us, and canceled sin. See, the gospel is not about us. The gospel is about Jesus, what he did, his life of perfect obedience, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. The penalty for our sin has been paid, and the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us. Yes, your sins, my sins are forgiven, 
but that should be a comfort for our shortcomings, not an excuse to indulge in our depravity. Our faith in Christ should cause us to, fors- to forsake sin and seek to grow in him. But if our understanding of the cross is viewed as an excuse to sin, then we should pray for a changed heart. The gospel is good news. Our sins are already paid for. We are forgiven. It is finished. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And so we respond with obedience to the Father. The gospel is good news. It's the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we've had this time to be in your word this morning. That we can go to your word for deep truths, rich, meaty. Father, we pray that we have understood them, that we will have understood them well. Equip us, Lord, not only to better understand our wonderful relationship with you, but to better be able to communicate that relationship to others. Especially during this time, what people need to hear, what the world needs is Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much for salvation. But what a glorious salvation is ours. How thrilling it is to know in our hearts and lives that you have redeemed us in this way, secured us forever, and that there is, apart from Jesus Christ, no salvation in any other name. We ask that you work on our hearts to increase our desire to be obedient to you. We thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ask that you work in our hearts to respond to that truth in praise and not selfishness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.